Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. The Global Peace Index is an ambitious effort to measure peacefulness around the world using quantitative data. Now in its 15th year, the index has offered policymakers and analysts a useful way to measure key trends in peace and conflict. A few weeks back, the Institute for Economics and Peace released the 2021 Global Peace Index based on data from last year. Steve Killalay, founder and executive director of the Institute for Economics and Peace, is on the podcast to discuss the report's findings and what it suggests about broader trends in peace and conflict. We kick off discussing how the data are collected before having a deeper conversation about the key findings from the new Global Peace Index. Enjoy this conversation. I always look forward to the annual release of the Global Peace Index, and I will post a link to it in the show notes of this episode. And now here is my conversation with Steve Killalay of the Institute for Economics and Peace. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Mark, if you look, my background is actually in business. I set up two international IT companies. One ended up publicly listed on NASDAQ and the other on the Australian Stock Exchange. And from that, I've made a fair amount of money and then set up a family foundation to work with the poorest of the poor. And so it's done about 220 different projects in many of the poorest parts of the world. But what you find is many of the poor are in conflict zones or near post-conflict zones. It would have been probably 17 years ago, I was in northeast Kabul in the Congo, which is one of the more violent places in the world, walking through there and I started to think, well, what are the most peaceful nations in the world? Was there anything I could learn from them which I could bring into the projects I was doing? It was a bit of a fantasy question, but got home, searched the internet and couldn't find anything. And that's how the Global Peace Index was born. But that creates a really quite a profound question because a simple businessman such as myself can be walking through Africa and wonder what are the most peaceful nations in the world and it hasn't been done, then how much do we actually understand peace? You can't measure something. Can you truly understand it? And if you can't measure it, how do you even know whether your actions are helping you or hindering you in achieving your goals? You just don't. And so what are some of the measurements uh, that your organization uses to determine levels or trends in peacefulness of a country or a place? So I think the first thing is what I realized that is what's really important is the definition used for peace 
because it's, so if you're talking, let's say, about inner peace, it'd be very, very different to what you're doing if you're talking about, let's say, uh, measuring a global peace. So what we did is we used a definition called the absence of violence or fear of violence is the definition, and then the measurements flow from that. And there's many other definitions of peace. Which That's which, sometimes called negative peace, right? The absence exactly, of violence. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's negative peace. And That's like academic fine. jargon, we should say, for, for how one defines peace. But yes, go ahead. Sure. Now that's fine. And there's also positive peace, which is another another one we use. So it's, it's the absence of violence or fear of violence. And then what we did is we looked at three different domains. So the first one's internal safety and security. So that's things like the level of homicide rates, the number of the uh, policing, levels of violent crime, incarceration rates, state-sponsored terror on its citizens, availability of small arms. The second is ongoing conflict, which is fairly self-evident. The third domain is militarisation. So these three domains come together to form a composite index which contains 23 different indicators. Today we measure 163 countries and independent territories which covers about 99.7% of the world's population. What do you mean by militarization? The other examples seem fairly straightforward, measuring you know sure. levels of yeah, homicide in a country conflict. Yeah. yeah. Now, militarization would look at the uh, let's say the percentage of GDP spent on the military, number of armed service personnel per hundred thousand population, level of the exports, level of imports of weapons then the sophistication of those weapons. And so sometimes some people say, well, doesn't the military keep peace? And we'd say, yes, in, uh, in many circumstances, that's right. But let's think about why do you have a military? And that's because either you want to use it coercively or alternately you fear someone else or you need to protect your, your, your national interests. So that comes back under either violence or fear of violence. And certainly it's not a moral judgment on uh, whether what the right levels of military are or not, because if you're in a nasty part of the world, you obviously need strong militaries. But if you've got that, you're obviously not in a situation of peace, are you? So you've been putting these reports together for the last eight years, is that right? Global Peace Index now has been going for 15 years. 15 years, okay. Just launched the 15th. Uh, things like the global terrorism—that's eight years old. Mm, yes, uh, and that—that's a like a the corollary index. And actually, was was at your global terrorism launch event a couple of years ago. I moderated a panel for that as well at USIP, and that's a fascinating uh, a corollary uh, a report to your annual global peace index, which I hope we'll touch on at the end of this conversation as well. Um, but I wanted to kind of ask you over these last 15 years, and and we'll get to uh, your most recent report soon, but over these last 15 years, what trends have you seen in uh, overall levels of peace, where peace is most enduring, where it is most fragile? Sure. So looking at it, the Middle East and North Africa is the least peaceful region in the world. That's fairly obvious because of the various conflicts that wrapped it, let's say, over the last decade. Uh, that'd be followed by South Asia, and obviously South Asia includes places like Afghanistan uh, uh, and Pakistan. We go to the most peaceful region in the world. That's the uh, yeah, that's Europe. Now, if we 
looking into Europe, looking to, to let's say, this year, eight of the ten most peaceful nations reside in Europe. The only two who don't is Canada and New Zealand, uh, which obviously one's in North America and the other's in Asia. And so if we look at those long-term trends, what we find is that 75 countries deteriorated, 86 countries improved, but there's an overall deterioration of 2% in peacefulness. That may not sound a lot, but it's quite a bit. But if you look that you've got 11 more countries improving than deteriorating, what it highlights is that it's much easier to fall in peace and improve in peace. So improvements in peace tend to be gradual, whereas if we're looking at falls in peace, they can be really quite quick. What's an example of a country that fell rapidly in its peace rankings this year? Belarus would be one example. Uh, that's because of the it's bad, poor relationships with its, uh, na- with its neighbouring countries, the very sanctions which have put on increases in violent demonstrations and such. So that would be one example. Bikini Faso also had the had the, one of the biggest falls, but it was fairly low already, and that's back to the internal conflicts going on within that nation. So we looked in 2020. There are a couple of examples there. But if we came back to the decade, we looked at trends there, you can see that violent demonstrations were up 251%. And if you, we may want to come back to that later because that's an ongoing trend, and that's one which could have ramifications for the future. Refugees are up to about 84 million now. That's a 100% increase of where they were a decade ago. We look at homicides. There's been a continual trend globally on decreasing rates of homicides. So that's one of the really positive spots of the last decade. And if we look, battlefield deaths actually uh, peaked in about 2014 with the height of the war against the uh, ISIS. And that was about 140,000 people. So that's now formed about 80,000. Uh, intensity of conflicts have also risen quite, and the number of conflicts have also risen quite dramatically you know, over that period of time as well. So there are a few of the trends. Uh, so you mentioned this stark number, 250% increase in the numbers of violent demonstrations uh, around the world. Obviously, the year 2020, the most recent year for which data was used to compile your uh, index, was a year of you know, profound global unrest. What's the connection between decreasing peacefulness and increase in, in protest? I mean, you saw protests in you know many stable Western European countries as well. That didn't necessarily suggest levels of violence. Yeah, so there's two, two well, what we're, there's a number of different ways of being able to look at the demonstrations. So one is the ones which are serious and violent demonstrations. So we're looking at the Global Peace Index, it looks at violent demonstrations. Uh, so if we're looking at demonstrations overall, they're up 251%. And a lot of people had argued demonstrations can be good things, so like, let's say like Black Lives Matter, for example. And we'd say yes. But what demonstrations do show is a discontent with the established norm and that people are looking for the system to change. So now if we looked, let's say uh, there were 15,000 demonstrations in 2020. Now if we start to break them down, there are a whole range of uh, different, uh, different issues. So one is there was something like 5,000 incidences related to or violent incidences related to COVID lockdowns. We looked at Latin America, uh, 
many, many, many countries down there had a lot of demonstrations against the economic policies in those countries. Come up to the US, obviously, you've got the Black Lives Matters and a lot of COVID, COVID demonstrations there as, there as well. If you go over to India, for example, you've got the issues with the agricultural legislation with the farmers running very, very long periods of demonstrations. COVID-19 stopped the uh, yellow vests in uh, uh, France, but they'll come back. They'll come back once the lockdowns start to list. Go over to Myanmar, huge number of demonstrations there as well over the coup. So you can see it's a, it's a mixed bag and it, it, it's varying greatly. But if we look globally, what we can find is the underlying trends, which I think are the ones which we probably really need to focus on. And so if we're looking at some of those underlying trends, like there's a growing dissatisfaction with democracy. That's in a lot of the high the countries, which would say have the highest levels of democracy. There's rising perceptions of corruption. That's particularly between business and government. You also find group grievances are increasing, and you're also finding more fractionalisation. Uh, within a lot of these societies as well. And on top of that, in many countries, uh, yeah, particularly in advanced democracies, you are getting an erosion of working conditions and in some countries, wages. And so these underlying conditions, we think, are uh, what really needs to be addressed. Well, well, that leads to my next question. You know, you collect all this disparate data from around the world and you know you, you crunch the numbers you put out a report what do you hope that policymakers do with the information that you've collected and how you present it well i think there's a number of different ways all this does get used actually so i think the first one it does give an idea of sort of global trends so for example if we're looking at the one of the biggest or the biggest one of the biggest increases in peace this year second biggest was iraq and the biggest improvement of all the regions in the world was Middle East and North Africa. So that gives you an idea that things are on a, on a whole getting better. So you've got the ability to be able to now assess trends. Things like militarisation, for example, if you look at it over the last decade, that had been improving quite substantially, just a slow, gradual improvement. But we can see that it looks like that trend is actually uh, reversed and that sort of we're finding more countries that are, uh, in 2020 uh, increase their militarisation. So that decade-long trend appears like it's reversing. So 97 countries actually deteriorated, deteriorated on militarisation. And so now if we uh, look at that, that really comes back to, I guess, international geopolitical tensions in many ways, like it's Russia, with the EU, Russia with the US, and you can also see China, its relationships with the US and also it's with its neighbours in the Indochina Sea. So it gives you one thing, it gives, it gives you a whole lot of trends. Uh, the other thing which goes in hand with this is sort of the research which we've got, which looks at what creates peaceful societies. And that work gets really quite profound, and we call that positive peace. So that gives us the ability then to be able to turn that into an index as well, which is uh, the uh, core positive peace index, unsurprisingly. And now what that does now is we've got the ability to be able to determine the momentum of countries as they're moving towards or away from those underlying factors which create peace. 
And that gives us a lot of things we can do there. So, look, if we look at what that is, it gives us the indication of what their piece theoretically should be. If we compare that now to the actual piece as measured by the Global Peace Index, we find that countries with the largest deficits are the ones or the biggest differences between the actual piece and the levels of the piece. So if the actual piece is much higher than the levels, we've been able to sort of work out models where we can get up to 90% accuracy rate on large falls in peace. And that's a real use to policymakers. Well, can you give me a specific example of that, of that sort of process in action? Sure. Uh, okay, so what you do is you, you take the uh, Global Peace Index, you look at the scores, so you can do it by ranks, and you look at the uh, scores on or the ranks on the Positive Peace Index. And so what you do is you take the countries which have got, let's say, uh, bigger than a 40, 40 plus, keep it simple, bigger than a 40-place difference. They're the ones which are most likely to have large increases in peace. So what you do now is you take a snapshot a decade ago of the way it would look at look, and now you see where the results are today and you see which countries have actually fallen. So we take a snapshot of the 10 countries with the largest deficit a decade ago, nine of them decreased, take a snapshot of the 30 countries with the largest deficit, 70% of them decreased. And you try to like what reverse engineer how that um, advancement happened? Uh, well, it gives you an idea of being able to look at which countries are likely to be most fragile in, mm. the, in, in the ensuing okay. decade. And the good thing about that is a lot of early warning systems which look, let's say, uh, three months in advance, and a lot of them are very, very good. But if you really want to take concerted action, you've got to be looking years out. So lastly, your uh, index, your 2021 index, did note that there has been a consecutive year decline in terrorism-related deaths. Uh, And I know, as I mentioned earlier, you put out this uh, other index, a global terrorism index. What what accounts for this global decrease in terrorism-related deaths? Well, uh, simply it's the uh, demise of Boko Haram, IS. So the Islamic State was what really fueled it. And if we look at the, uh, in 2020, one of the biggest the, uh, areas of improvement was terrorism. But uh, having said that, and that's the sixth consecutive year that it's improved. But having said that, a lot of that improvement came off the back uh, of Europe. So what we do with the terrorism indicator is we look at it and take a five-year five uh, lag on it. So if there was a terrorist attack five years ago, it would still count today, and then the six-year total drops off. So the uh, proportionality of it decreases year on year. So in the first year, it's 51%, goes to 26%, 13 6%, and so on. But I think we don't want to get too complacent with terrorism. It's certainly improved dramatically uh, in Western democracies. If we go over to areas like the Horn of Africa and Sahel, uh, we find that there's a number of terrorism there on the rise. So five, five, the five countries with the largest, well, it's the six countries with the largest increases in terrorism are all in that area. And those areas are also got a lot of issues around resource constraints, particularly around water and food. They've also got some of the highest population growth in the world. Like there's... 13 countries in sub-Saharan Africa, which are going to more than double their population in the next 30 years. So these 
terrorist groups over in the Sahel all would be have alliances with Islamic states. So although it's defeated in Iraq and Syria and doesn't have the territory anymore, it's not capable of really projecting a, a considerable force into Europe or the US. It's still a force to be reckoned with in other parts of the world, particularly some of the more, more unstable parts. Uh, lastly, is there a finding from this year's report, the 2021 Global Peace Index, that particularly surprised you or interests you? I think one was the was an increase in militarization, and so that reversed a ten year trend. That wasn't a, wasn't something I was expecting to see. Now you can see this started two years ago. Now, the question is, what will happen next year and the year after? Our estimates at the moment are that militarisation is probably on the increase for the next few years. And that's really on the back of a whole range of heightened global intentions, which may not be good for world peace in the long run. I think what, drove that, thing, what drove those numbers up, Mask, like in, in the militarisation numbers up? Oh, it's increases in uh, yeah, yeah, Milex, uh, that was one, and inc- increases in the uh, yeah, weapons imports and uh, increases in, in the number of the uh, soldiers, number of armed service mm. personnel per 100,000 population. Hmm. Where in per- is there any sort of region or country in particular that was responsible for driving up these global averages? It's a, it's a global trend. Uh, I'd say I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd probably put it down to a global trend rather than any one area. A Latin America is probably less militarised than most parts of the world, but on the other hand, it's got a hell of a lot of organised crime and the, the highest levels of homicide rates globally. Mm. You can see it through Asia. Uh, you can see it through a number of the European countries now starting to increase their expenditure. China's up a bit, US is up a bit as well, and then the Middle East is also increased. Any final remarks or anything you want to leave listeners with about your 2021 report? Yeah, I think uh, I think there's a couple of things. If you're interested in this stuff, I've written a book called The Peace in the Age of Chaos. But it covers a lot more than just global peace. It looks at the qualities which create the highly peaceful societies. It ties that back into the economic effects of the uh, the, uh, violence on the global economy and then looks at the positive peace and the relationships between it and and many of the things which we value. So, look, societies which are increasing in positive peace compared to ones which are deteriorating on average have 3% per annum annum higher GDP growth rates, measures of well-being and happiness are higher, they put them better on measures of eco- ecology and better on measures of inclusion. So positive peace in many ways can describe an optimal environment for human potential to flourish. And as I think, as we're looking now on some of the challenges facing Western democracies, we do need new ways of being able to think about how we govern and manage our societies. And peace in the age of chaos sets out a blueprint for that. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you, Steve. It was good to catch up. Okay, great, Mark. Really enjoyed the conversation. 
All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Steve. It was good to reconnect with him after a few years, as I mentioned in the conversation. I moderated the launch of their Global Terrorism Index at the U.S. Institute for Peace a few years back. And always good to reconnect with the Institute for Economics and Peace. All right. We'll see you later. Bye.